This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's secret word is post-digital. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is Max Oakland. Max is a singer, producer, and video game creator from Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Max. Glad to have you here. How's it going today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. So as regular viewers know, we always dress up in costume for the show. We go all out. So the podcast listeners, of course, can't see us. Tell all the folks who are listening what you're wearing for the show today. I'm wearing a rabbit mask. Nice. And I, you know, wanted to match and go with the spring theme. So I have this full Bambi costume on, uh, which is a little constraining. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I really should have worked out more before playing the part of Bambi, but uh, it does feel springy and, you know, a little positive energy. Um, if I don't think too hard about my memories of that movie, then it gets a little dark. Uh, so, uh, this is a show about procrastination, what we've been doing when we are not doing our work. And so what is something that's been distracting you from pop culture this last week? I've been watching Rugrats. Um, I was interested to see how I felt about it as an adult. And I really like the worldview and strange liminal moments. Um, Yeah, it's about it's some babies. Yeah, and it is. It really is an interesting way to kind of, uh, you know, the, the perceiving the world from these babies' points of view. That's, uh, you know, and it and does it hold up as watching it as an adult? I have not, you know, I I should go back and check it out. I'm on season three right now, and yeah, it holds up. One of the things that surprised me was how evil the angelica character comes across as an adult as a kid she seemed bad but as an adult she seems like just shocking like i can't believe that was a character that they allowed yeah you're well you know and i wonder if that would be different now or if because we were able to handle it as kids and just go she's naughty like mm -hmm. would that still fly today or would you know, people be up in arms going, no, she's, she's terrible. She's putting them in dangerous situations. Uh, Apparently they came out with like a new version of Rugrats. So I haven't watched it. Um, so I don't know if their Angelica is better in that one or not. Or, or even worse. Yeah. Who yeah. Knows? It would be What's, interesting uh, to see. Yeah. For the, for the modern era, Angelica for the modern era, uh, better or worse. Um so yeah, that's uh, that 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 is something I will have to check out. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, I, I like that idea of seeing it from trying to see the world from a baby's perspective, trying to see the world from any you know distinctly different perspective. Have you ever read the uh, the book Room? Or, or I've seen I've not seen the film, but I understand there's a film version of it too. 
Uh, have you ever read? I don't know. I've heard of it, but it's I didn't know really, it was it's, it's really trippy. But the thing that stuck with me as a writer is it is told from the perspective of a child with and he's I think he's maybe six, but his life experience has been so constrained. He and his mother, the, the horror of the book is he and his mother are being kept in a room and have been since before his birth. And so he has had no experience of the outside world. And there's this evil person who is keeping them locked in this room. But uh, the hearing the story told from this kid's perspective, not only is the, the perspective, you know, interesting, but the writer had to think about what vocabulary would this kid have? How would this kid communicate the story? And, you know, telling a really very adult, very frightening story with that limited kid's vocabulary, it would be really challenging. Whereas, you know, Rugrats, it really is, as a cartoon, you're, you really, we really are seeing not just their reactions, but like how they see the world. That would be. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting is not only does it show how they see the world, but it shows a lot of angles of the world that you wouldn't see on other shows one because it's you know being shown from a kid's perspective but also I think they just went out of their way to like show a lot of things behind what you would normally see like on a tv set you're seeing you know uh one of my favorite parts about the show is this like they'll show the tv set at first and then they'll pull back and show like what's actually going on behind the tv set like and when i say tv set i mean like the set where they're shooting a show you know what i mean like oh so they um, they are there's like a meta fourth wall thing where it's like we are making the show rugrats within not that kind of tv set but like for example if there was an episode where they went on to a tv set because um D.E.D. the mom was going on like a quiz show or something so they show like the perspective of the show itself like what we see and then they show a lot of like what's going on in the background of the show that we don't normally see and that's the thing that I'm really enjoying about watching it because I think it has a lot of imagination and creativity that I think is really inspiring yeah, and it would be really interesting for a, a little kid watching that because you're now seeing behind the scenes from a kid's perspective for kids, you know, and then we're seeing mm-hmm. it with this other layer of adults seeing this, knowing kids were seeing this, you know, yeah, that that's that would be an interesting show to kind of analyze as an adult, how that is all layered. Yeah, um, and then the adults will be talking and... Uh... Actually, something, another thing I find interesting about the show is a lot of the time the kids are just doing stuff and the adults are talking, having their conversations. So there was definitely like thought putting to what the adults were saying. Like there was this one comment, um, one of the moms made, uh, Angelica's mom is like a high powered businesswoman. And she was like saying, I would never call somebody sweetheart at my work after the Clarence Thomas hearings or something like that. Oh my so gosh. There's like uh, stuff going on that you may not notice the first time. Yeah. Little, you know, no kid is going to get that gag, but uh, right. yikes. Yeah. That's, that is interesting that they, you know, and, and that's a fine line. You don't want to create so much adult content in a kid's show that the adults are saying, this is good kids. And the kids are going, I don't know why the adults like it, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
sometimes kids cartoon movies will veer into here are a Mm -hmm. lot of jokes that are wink and nods for adults really you know but uh Mm -hmm. but uh you know just finding enough uh that that's they become like these almost easter eggs for adults like oh that was really cool that was a surprising bit they used to do a lot of those in spongebob where it was like Mm -hmm. okay that was a bit that only the adults watching would get and it was really clever (laughs) you know spongebob is very funny yeah yeah, that one was not always for, I mean, it wasn't targeted at kids in quite the same way. It was this absurdist, like, kids can totally enjoy it, adults can enjoy it, but it's this otherworldly thing, uh, you know, with with clever bits plugged in for more targeted audiences. Here's some slapstick for little kids, and here's a really erudite joke for adults, and, you know, but it was within this just madcap, zany world. I think that, you know, the people making it were, always really really stoned when they were writing it (laughs) and we're having that would explain a lot i was wondering i was watching it not too long ago uh just like a few episodes and i just was kind of uh i don't know just amazed at how funny spongebob is but not like you could write a show with a lot of the same elements that would be really off-putting or annoying but for whatever reason, it just works really well. And there were some cartoons a little earlier uh, before then. Um, uh, uh, Zim, what was the uh, Alien Zim or whatever? Invader Zim. Invader Zim, yes. Where it was like almost intentionally off-putting. Like it was saying, mm. you are not the audience for this. You are not the audience for this. If you like this, you are cool. Because you're this small group, right? Mm. And SpongeBob was far more welcoming. Like it was like, anybody can watch this. It's just wacky, you know? Uh, and and so you know I, I I understand the idea of a really targeted demographic, uh, and and you know that 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 is certainly an artistic choice. But I liked in SpongeBob where it was like, no, this is going to be really bizarre, but not bizarre in a way that is, you're right, like really potentially off-putting <laughs> to the audience. Yeah. So uh, what's something else that's been going on in the news that you may have noticed lately that has been taking you away, taking your attention away from your writing? A lot of things in the news have been uh, really distracting. Um, I'm really being constantly inundated with news about laws that are being put in place controlling people's freedom of expression and lots of trying to ban social media apps like TikTok and all sorts of things. Just a lot of uh, laws being put into place that are really controlling people. Yeah, my my fiance has a, a, a theory about the uh, the attempt to ban TikTok that it's far less about the kind of pretext of national security and, you know, and, and and even nationalism, because it's not really like, you know, anything that's on Facebook or Twitter is any safer from the Chinese government. But the, right. really, this is about, you know, American protectionism in the sense of let's make sure that the companies, which will still turn over information to the Chinese government, are American companies, are Facebook and Twitter. And and that, you know, she deep, you know, suspects that this is really Zuckerberg trying to shift everybody onto Instagram reels rather than TikTok. And, and you know, even Google saying, hey, this next generation does their searching on TikTok rather than on Google. 
let's do whatever we can to keep people off uh, TikTok. But you're right. It is. It's. I definitely think it's part of that. Like one of the reasons. um, So I don't know if everybody knows this, but the TikTok ban was created by Facebook. They lobbied for it from Mm -hmm. the start and they started doing it when news broke that Facebook had sold lots of user data to China. Mm -hmm. So there's no question in my mind that it has nothing to do with user data because if it was, we'd be banning the collection of all that user data. Right. Um, but yeah, it's also a lot to do with Facebook trying to get rid of their biggest competition right. because they're not allowed to buy any more companies because that's pretty much what they've done yeah. from the start. Yeah, so purchase Instagram. If you're realizing young people right. are going to Instagram, just buy it, you know, and they can't do that with TikTok. Exactly. And then on top of that, there's like an element of a lot of organization and information that's inconvenient for, you know, maintaining the status quo is being spread on TikTok. So I think a lot of people think that TikTok is just kids being annoying and dancing. And it's like actually part of the reason we had such high turnout of younger generations in the recent elections. And that's a problem for some people who don't want those people to be voting. And don't want those people to be knowledgeable. You know, don't want those people, you know, if you want to control the information so you can say, pay no attention to a Supreme Court race in the state of Wisconsin. No, it's a really important one. And when young people are telling young people, this one really matters and here's why, uh, you know, yeah, if if you're, if you're, all your incentive is we need the, the, you know, the next generation to be unaware and unconcerned. And you've got this platform where young people are saying, no, this is going to have a deep effect on your life. This really matters. Mm -hmm. Then that platform itself becomes a threat. So yeah, that's a big, and I see that kind of content on TikTok all the time. And I don't see it at all on Facebook reels or whatever, or Instagram reels or YouTube, whatever their copy is. I don't see any of that kind of like really personal political kind of stuff. I see a lot of the trashy stuff. And for whatever reason on Instagram, my reels are filled with like celebrity type things that I'm not really usually that engaged with or interested in a lot of like clips from really old movies which you know it's a little interesting to see but it's not as pertinent as political information that's like expanding my mind and you know informing me about people's personal struggles and things like that so it seems like there's you know like if they wanted to show that stuff on instagram or youtube they could but they don't well and i think that the the algorithms themselves start to take on a bit of the personality of the network so if people go to instagram and say i am here to have an apolitical very safe place kind of i just want to see pictures of my friends meals and their you know their their animals then the reels start to reinforce that and say, this is just going to be about celebrities. It's going to be very superficial. It's going to be safe and fun. That's what will promote engagement because the algorithm only cares about engagement. And then, you know, on a network where it's like, uh, you know, Facebook, where it's, uh, you know, multi-generational and it's like, hey, what is going to get engagement from somebody who is 
65 and somebody who is 25 and somebody who is, you know, then it ends up being this like, what is this funny, you know, somebody slip and fall kind of video. Uh, and it's not going to be political, you know, in that way. And then TikTok is like, no, we've been in the algorithm itself has been informed by the choices of the people making those choices so quickly saying, no, if something's intelligent and witty and quick uh, and and provides me with use, genuinely useful information, the algorithm's going to feed more of that. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the the generations and what those the, the users have informed the algorithm keeps their attention. Yeah, and YouTube. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and also kind of <laughs> the way it just goes to the darkest like that. Is yeah, it's really salacious kinds of yeah. things. Uh, but I think also it seems like TikTok is more tuned into the algorithm you want. Like it actually cares more. Yes. Like I can't tell you how many times on YouTube they show me videos that I've already watched. And I said, I don't like this video because I've already watched it and they don't care. Yeah. Like they will show you a lot of what they want you to see rather than showing you what you want to see. And that's one of the big difference between the two, because I've heard people talking not only about the fact that their algorithm shows them totally different stuff, but complaining that the TikTok algorithm has gotten worse mm. because, um, you know, once a company gets really big and powerful, the impetus to give people what they want isn't necessarily as important yeah. anymore it's more you know they change so that's one of the reasons why i think open source social media is the only future like we can't have big corporations in charge of social media anymore it has to be open source well yeah as long as it's for profit it is going to the algorithm is always going to be tweaked towards right. profit and power yeah. right uh yeah but uh but you know generating the necessary infrastructure for open source has been the challenge like i tried out mastodon hive and you know the those and until they a get the network effect you just get enough people actually on there uh but b i'm not sure they've got the, the you know they load slowly like that you know and so it is going to be tricky to get enough people to go on to support those and produce the infrastructure to then make those successful without just turning them into twitter 2.0 you know um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, it's something that I'm keeping my eye on. I'm really interested to see how that plays out and how we as a culture then learn how to take information from social media and, and, you know, adapt to understanding. So like at every, at every time there's a new communication method, it causes conflict because one generation figures it out and the next generation still hasn't and can be easily manipulated by it. You know, the, the previous generation. Mm. So like, you know, it's, it's no surprise that the, the rise of the of fascist movement came about when movies became popular. Um, yeah. And radio. Had to, yeah. Manipulate people with these things. People were used to reading newspaper and treating it critically and mm -hmm. saying, OK, some newspapers I need to read in this way or that. But they knew how and they weren't ready to for movies and, and radio that could manipulate their emotions. And then, you know, people were not ready for uh, immediate news coverage during the Vietnam era, where they were like, oh, my gosh, we're actually, you know, seeing live a war zone, you know, and then now the 2016 election was hands absolutely manipulated by, you know, really amateur hour Russian propagandists, like they didn't know what they were, you know, how to manipulate people, but they just knew, hey, you just throw up a bunch of junk ads on Facebook, and people who, you know, are inclined to go whatever my friends share i believe 
uh, were <laughs> very easily manipulated uh, in a way that you yeah. know I think the next generation will not be. They will go. This feels weird to me that TikTok is feeding me this stuff. I don't like it. You know. I the- hope so. I see people on TikTok criticizing not only TikTok for like what I was saying with the algorithm, but also just when people are uh, falling for misinformation. I see a lot of that kind of stuff. And that's really important because there's never going to be a perfect system, but something really important is people being taken seriously when they point out problems with like, different kinds of content and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I also read this really depressing piece about how when we fact check, we can actually promote a lie. So, you know, you can bring attention to something by saying this is not true. And so learning how to, you know, handle that kind of collectively and saying this, this, this misinformation, like an example, I don't know if you've seen these videos of these people who pretend that because they got the vaccine, they now have like Tourette's or, you know, the shakes or whatever. And it is, you know, exclusively anti-vaxxers who somehow get this condition. Huh, it's it's wild that only (laughs) anti-vaxxers get the vaccine and, and, you know, get the shakes and put up these videos. And yet people saying, have you seen the crazy behavior of this person actually promotes this myth that the vaccine causes the shakes, you know, which... Huh, it's weird that nobody else experiences that except for people who are anti-vax like that's very you know uh but uh it's yeah. i guess that's why critical thinking is important yeah and to teach yeah yeah and and difficult to teach and getting and i think it's one yeah, of the reasons why there's sure. so much uh you know uh, let's attack the schools nowadays it's there are people going let's attack the schools they're trying to teach kids how to think critically and that's a threat to us <laughs> you know yeah or teaching i mean anything that disagrees with the their worldview will be an attack so like they blame college for it yep whatever it's just like if it is taking power away from them that's a threat that has to be attacked and you know i'm speaking as a teacher like i see a lot of my job as empowerment and i also recognize the schools have traditionally been an institution for maintaining the status quo and so how do we make sure we are teaching in such a way as to say to students think critically challenge me challenge this institution push back you know and also not fall into that rut of saying oh and you know some the the power structure is going to come in and say but this is what you must believe this is the what you need to know for the test this is you know and how do we challenge Mm. that when there are certainly people out there who want us to use the schools to say accept the traditional family structure accept the you know the, the the idea that you need to go into a nine to five manufacturing job uh, like the 1950s like you know how do we push back on that and say it doesn't have to be that way you get to have power um so yeah I, on a day-to-day basis i'm like am i helping or hurting <laughs> yeah i could definitely see how challenging that could be it's, it's tricky um so uh as you need to clear your head <laughs> from all of the uh the the news stuff that we are internalizing what is a hobby that you uh, that helps you get you know get away from your writing and also get away from the news of the world? Well, that's a tough one because every time I get a hobby, I kind of try to turn it into like 
my next career. I totally do that too. Um, I've definitely been. interested in the idea of animation but like i said i kind of like have tried to turn that into like a thing that can benefit my career so once that happens i no longer really want to do it as a hobby it becomes work but right sometimes i still have that i mean drawing i guess is a thing i guess probably my biggest hobby right now is just walking I like going on walks and runs and um and the great thing about that is you thing. you don't end up going oh and I'm going to be become a professional walker like I guess it that's true I never thought about it, it but yeah, yeah it, you can't it, do that it's a safe one you know where it's not like oh this is now going to become my identity I walk the city like you can mm -hmm. go no this is a way for me to kind of clear my head I mean I think it's it's good to find I I've uh, you know mentioned on a previous show I started growing bonsai because mm -hmm. bonsai are never finished so I don't have that feeling of I have to get this thing done it's another thing to check off my to-do list like the bonsai will not get done and it doesn't become a job. Like, it's never like, oh, and now I'm a professional bonsai grower. <laughs> you know, like, I never really thought about that, that, but it's but true. Yeah, it's, you know, and I think walking is safe in that way. Like, I'm just going to go, you know, I've got a dog. I don't know if folks can hear my dog snoring in the background. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, taking Evie for a walk will never become my occupation. And so it's nice to, for that to be an outlet. Yeah, it's true. I love doing creative stuff, but it's a real struggle to always need to be promoting stuff. And yeah. uh, I mean, it's like, I, I enjoy drawing and stuff, but uh, it can also be used to promote. So then that kind of makes it into like a, you know, it's not a hobby anymore when you have a need to do it. Yeah, you kind of pull rope that thing in and then it becomes obligatory and not yeah. just one. Yep, I totally I totally hear that. Even, you know, like I dabbled in uh, painting during COVID. And even mm -hmm. then it was like, oh, and could I paint the cover of one of the books that, we, you know, and it was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm doing that thing where I'm making it into a job, you know, mm -hmm. and like, no, I don't need to become a professional painter, cover artist for books. My paintings are not that high quality. I'm doing this for fun, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, the, uh, resisting that temptation is a challenge in and of itself. Yeah, and I've only like just recently realized this is a thing for me to notice. So I haven't really uh, resisted it or even thought about how to do that. Just noticed how it's kind of affected my free time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the flip side is totally legitimate too. Like we are trying to promote our work. And so if you're going, oh, I just drew this thing and now I can use it in the promotion of the single that launches mm -hmm. that it feels natural to go. I don't want to feel like I wasted my time and I do have to promote this single. Those two things get joined. So, you know, I, I totally hear that temptation to go, you know, th there are not enough hours in the day. How am I going to make right. that's fun the thing. Useful? Yeah, that's really what it is. It's like there's just not enough time. So it, that could be a way for me to give myself time to draw. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it, it. And I, I have not by any means found that balance. Like everything becomes 
oh, and, and could this help, you know, help the authors that I work with promote their work? Mm -hmm. Could this, you know, and it's like, oh, that, that, that temptation is always there. Um, so we're going to go into our ad break, but when we come back, what is something you've been, I'll ask you about what's something you've been daydreaming about. So we'll go into our ad break now, and then we'll come back and talk about that with Max Oakland in a moment. Okay. Available May 2nd from Karen Eisenbray, author of the Daughter of Magic trilogy and the Saint Rage duology, a new science fiction novel, Ego and Endurance. In this space exploration adventure modeled on Ernest Shackleton's disastrous Antarctic expedition, Ruby Ladd is commanding the first crewed mission to the asteroid belt, ready to redeem herself after a tragedy on Mars five years earlier. She never asked for a nosy filmmaker whose search for a story will only reopen old wounds. A trip to the asteroid belt is just what Heartgunner needs for his next thrilling documentary. He suspects the heart of his story lies in the commander's past, but she's not talking. When disaster strikes, Ladd and Gunner must work together for the crew to survive. Johanna Hoyt, author of Believing is Seeing, says, A funny, tender, and eye-opening science fiction adventure, love story, workplace drama with vivid descriptions of the wonders, perils, and incongruities of outer space, as well as the spaces inside us. You can pre-order your copy now. Also available starting April 18th, Nancy Ballard's Tricky Ground, book three of the Under Caracos Moon series. Lee Von Corey and Seth Riley discovered a community of non-human castaways whose existence threatens the future of the human settlement on the frontier planet Caraco. The leader of the hidden enclave frees Seth and Lee to go back to the human settlement with one task, deliver a message of peace to Caraco's leaders. Lee and Seth have miles of wilderness to cross on horseback, pursued by a contingent from the enclave, and among their fellow humans, they don't know who to trust and who has their own plans for the planet. The future of Carico is on the line. Miko Azul, author of the Demons of Moralia series, says, Navigating human and interspecies culture, politics, love, betrayal, and surviving the bleak landscape of Carico complicate Lee and Seth's nearly insurmountable task of saving their world from outsiders. And Karen Eisenbray, author of Ego and Endurance, says, a satisfying conclusion, full of thrills, twists, and lovably stubborn characters overcoming obstacles. Order your copy now. Welcome, everyone. We're back with Max Oakland. And Max, what is something you've been daydreaming about lately? Well, I mean, I've been daydreaming about being successful, you know, like having more of a financial support from the things I create. Um, I've been doing a lot of worrying about money. So I've been also doing a lot of daydreaming about having successful songs that start reaching people and, you know, people playing my games more, or I created a Patreon and stuff like that has been my daydreams, which kind of makes me sad because it seems so like, mundane and like that's not really what i want to be daydreaming about that's what my life has come to i i hear i totally hear that like uh, on the and and i think there's a, a kind of a a healthy daydream version of that and an unhealthy one and i i find myself slipping into the unhealthy one as well there's like the fun wouldn't it be cool if you know kind and then there's like the how do i figure this out and how do i make that happen daydream that can get really depressing um I, yeah I've, I've i've had both <laughs> i totally hear that the patreon is a great mechanism like i think it's 
I've got friends who are poets and that who do Patreons and I back them myself. Like it is, you know, something I want to encourage, but it's a lot of work. Like, you know, to provide those benefits for folks on a regular basis uh, is, uh, um, you know, becomes another job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just would like to find one thing that can be a job that can actually be like a good, steady, stable support that enables me to do everything I want to do in life, you know? And I think that's kind of the struggle right now is like, I don't feel like I have time to do the things I want to do in life. And so, yeah. I I, I wonder about kind of the, the way we will see universal basic income uh, uh, work out in some places, because if, you know, people like you or me had a UBI, would it provide us with the means to then produce more than the benefits of the UBI in the long run for society? You know, not in maybe, and maybe that's not easy to quantify because it's, you know, Hey, we're, you know, you're producing music. I'm producing books. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, but, you know, that, that is something, you know, if, if we didn't have to spend so much energy trying to figure out how do I, you know, uh, put food on the table, would that make for better music, more music, more books, more, you know, poetry, more, you know, of all kinds of art Good in the question. world that would then have more value for that society uh, because they'd invested in that way. So, yeah, maybe if we find a place that actually is successful with a UBI, you and I should be. <laughs> there's a there's a province in I believe in Canada or it might be a locality within one of the provinces that experimented with it and found that a lot of the worries people had did not come to pass. People didn't quit their jobs. People right. didn't, you know use it for drugs and debauchery and stuff. People basically went about their lives with a lot less stress and worry, and it worked. So I'm hopeful that those models will kind of catch on. Yeah, that's a good point. I think people have a really weirdly negative view of what people want out of life and doesn't really make much sense if you think about it, because I don't think most people just want to not do anything and do drugs all the time. I don't really know anybody who whose goal in life is to not do anything, have no purpose in life and, you know, just take from other people. So where did this idea that that's what people want come from? Well, I, I I can tell you as somebody who was raised in a particular kind of uh, uh, Christianity, uh, where you know it, it the message the stated idea was everybody's sinful, and if you're being taught that all the time, you know you're going oh everybody's sinful. But what was unstated is everybody but us is sinful. Mm-hmm. And so if you are, and really it's everybody but me. And so if you then are have bought into this idea, you're going, I don't want a UBI because all those other bad people will use it in all these other bad ways. And you've mm-hmm. bought into that. Whereas if people would say, what would I do with a UBI? Well, I wouldn't quit my job and I wouldn't, you know, take up, I wouldn't become a heroin addict. I don't want to do, you know, cocaine all day long or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, oxy or whatever. And so I wouldn't do that. Why can't I extend that to others? They probably wouldn't either. Uh, but, you know, if you've been raised with everybody is fundamentally evil and uh, it is only, you know, th- those of us who are in this building and in this community who are who are decent and good. And really, it's just me uh, that you know, it, there's a deep, un, uh, you know, deeply unhealthy view of others that motivates a lot of the the kind of, you know, we, we hate wokeness and caring about other people and empathy and all this really comes from a place of everyone's bad except me. 
Uh, and, and that's what people have been taught. That's what they've been raised with. So I think that some of the antipathy toward a UBI, it really does come from this sense that other people will misuse it because other people are bad. Um, and and yeah, my hope is they'll sense. see the data and go, oh, in the places that have experimented with it, it actually worked. That is not true, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but not everybody cares about the actual data. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. A lot of people, it seems like some people, when you tell them the data, it's kind of reveals that that's not what they really cared about at all. It's not, it's almost became more of like, I just don't want other people to be happy or I don't want other people to have things to help them that I didn't have. Yeah. And that's really hard to empathize with for me at least. Cause I yeah, don't you see a lot of understand that. that. You see a lot of that in the student loan debate uh, where people are oh, saying, yeah, oh, totally. student loan forgiveness and people's immediate reaction is, but I paid mine off. And it's like, yeah, and that was hard for you. Why do you want that hardship for others? Right? And also <laughs> I heard somebody say, uh, you were lucky enough to be able to pay off your student loans. You know, why yeah. don't you take that? And, and be grateful for extend it. that rather than this was hard i want others to suffer too like but the, but that's yeah. unstated and i don't think it's conscious i don't think the person is consciously saying i want other people to be miserable the way i was miserable they're just saying it feels deeply unfair that i experienced something that's hard and you might not and it's like okay how can we get beyond your sense that extending kindness and goodness is is harmful to you yeah but that that's that's, that's what i'd like to us. know how do we get past that yeah, and I if if I had the answer to that, <laughs> I don't know. But it is it is really tricky to watch, you know. It's, and it's and it's almost painful to watch to like to see somebody doing that and realize they don't realize that's what they're doing. You know, they don't realize they're demanding suffering of others. Uh, but they, you know, they 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 think they're promoting virtue, and you're like, oh, but you've been taught that this 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 kind of virtue that you've been led to believe, uh, you know, looking down on others as a good thing uh, is, you know, how do we get beyond that, that, that fundamental kind of root belief? It is, it's difficult to watch. Yeah, it is. Uh, so, uh, as, as, you know, escaping even from that, uh, what uh, is another means of procrastination? What, oh no, I don't want to skip this first. What's uh, an announcement? What's something you've got coming up uh, that folks need to know about really right now? Well, I have a new song out called Antifreeze. Um, I'd like everyone to listen to it. Uh, it's streaming on Spotify and YouTube and every other streaming service right now. So I'm really happy with it. It's, it came uh, out really well. I enjoyed that song. Thanks. And so we will put a link to that in the show notes as well. So folks who are you're listening to this podcast, do, do finish out the show and then go down to the show notes and click on that link and go check that out on Spotify. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I just want to give a little description of it. Um, it turns out to be a song that really takes the listener on a journey. And I think that it has a very cinematic production. So it's really dark. And uh, I'd say to me, it seems like a desert at night at first. And then it, once it gets to the chorus, it becomes much more warm and catchy and um, upbeat. And then it just kind of goes from there. The verse is a little bit dark again. And then the next chorus is a little bit brighter. And then the bridge is much more upbeat. And then the last chorus is, I'd say, kind of goes to a 
bit of transcendence and like uh ends the song off on a positive note and, and i'm so tempted to ask you a process question but this is not the show for it but you know <laughs> I, I am curious about how much as you're writing the lyrics you are thinking about what the listener's kind of emotional journey is through the song you know as you're but but I'm not asking because this is a show about procrastinating. <laughs> I have to I have to check myself whenever I'm working with artists. I'm like, oh, I'm so interested in how you do what you do. And then I'm like, nope, that's not the show. This <laughs> this is so people can get to know you and go, oh, yeah, I want to go listen to, to that song. So people should. Yeah, absolutely if people want to ask me that they can. I'd be happy to tell them. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, connect with and they can connect with you via what's the I mean, I, I know you and I met via Twitter. What's your best yeah. uh, platform for people to find you on? Well, I mean, my favorite platform for people to find me on is Spotify, because that's where they can listen to my music. Um, YouTube also is a good one. YouTube might be good for people if they want to uh, watch some non-music content, because I also make different types of videos. Like I have a one called Alien TV, where I compile like unusual videos that I've made or that I'm experimenting with. And the concept is that uh using a strange device that i got at a thrift store i'm able to get alien tv and record it so it's like tv from a different dimension cool. and so that's a good one um i use twitter um often and anybody who like wants to talk to me that's a good place to do it because yeah. that's a good one to have a conversation or mastodon i have that too so I've really signed up for all social media. Anytime I find out a new social media, I sign up for it at least so that I can park the name. Right, right. Because um, I don't want to have to have a weird name if it becomes popular. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll put links to all those so that if folks have questions about, you know, those kind of process uh, questions. Yeah. Uh, Ask away. Find... I'm always happy to talk to people about stuff yeah. like that. So what is in your uh, to read pile right now? What's coming up for you there or to listen to pile? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about to listen to because I got these CDs from the library. They're, they were giving them away. So this one is Management, Little Dark Age. I guess you can't really see it. Um, and then this one is Currents by Tame Impala. And they were just giving these away at the library. Nice. Yeah, it was really cool. And then I, I want to read this book about Seinfeld called Seinfeldia. And, and I started reading it, but I haven't finished it yet. Who's that by? Is that? It's by Jennifer Kaishin Armstrong. So it's not like one of the, the you know, famous names. It's somebody looking at it from the outside. Yeah, it's like about how it was created, how it was um allowed to be put on the air. So far, that's really how far I've gotten to, but... I'm going to guess there's a little bit more about what happened once it was on the air. And the first season, didn't the first season only have like four episodes and it seemed like it was yep. doomed? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then it survived. And they, the first episode, I watched it not too long ago and it's really bad. I was honestly amazed at how not good it was. And so this really goes to show you that uh you can't really judge your creative output too much based on what you've already made because the first episode of Seinfeld was not good and you know we're lucky that they allowed them to keep doing it because although there were other 
really successful and innovative shows at the time, like The Simpsons, too. I mean, I guess really around that time, our culture was just accepting a lot of new types of creativity, which I think is really cool. But Seinfeld was, you know, a really good one, too. So. Well, yeah, and I think, yeah, Seinfeld, I mean, the other thing it shows us as artists is a lot of it is timing outside of our control. Sad but true, yeah. If, if you know, Seinfeld managed to squeak in and barely with those four episodes at a time when people were desperate for something that wasn't the family sitcom. You know, the the dad, mom, kids being bratty, uh, you know, dad as a comedian, uh, you know, decides <laughs> he's going to go to L.A. and get this vehicle to do his comedy bit, uh, you know, with uh, the, the, the mom character who is always more intelligent, uh, you know, like like the, the the cliches in all of those were so pat. We were like, yep, I know exactly how this even got greenlit. You know, uh, somebody went and saw this person in a bar who had the power to say yes and made a show that was just like every other show so that the comedian they liked could have a vehicle. And Seinfeld was so different, uh, you know, and that it managed to to take off at that time. But, um, you know, if, yeah, if, if that first episode had dropped three years later, we may or earlier yeah earlier people would have been like we can't well and that's i think to some extent what happened with uh, arrested development it was just mm. too like arrested development was brilliant and happened too early and if it dropped now people would be like oh we're, we're ready for this now but you know it didn't have a laugh track i actually met people who said i can't get into that show there's no laugh track it doesn't that's you know, so funny people for me it's the opposite like it became like a real grading element of a lot of shows for there to be a laugh track oh, and yeah. at this point i can't really imagine watching one with no i cannot handle a laugh track i find it insulting i'm like you are telling me when to laugh <laughs> but but you know that that yeah. was part of the what people were so used to that yeah, rest totally. of development challenged it and people were like we we don't know what to do with this you know um so and, and it's, it's it's a shame it's like well i I, yeah. I, feel, I have the same feeling about rage against the machine like rage against the machine would have been the biggest band if it had waited you know if that sound had come out like three years later and when mm. it came out it was like okay this is too heavy and too you know it, it's it was doing too many amazing things at the same time and it certainly they found an audience and they made a career for the next whatever you know they're still still around uh yeah. but at the same time they could have been so much more popular had they been you know three years later and instead they were like just pre-grunge rather than post-grunge and if they showed up at that time people would have been like holy crap you know and instead people were like mm, this is scary <laughs> like yeah it's supposed to be <laughs> they are really challenging you um so yeah it's a lot of it's in the timing and we just don't as artists know we, we create the best stuff we can create and hopefully that's what there's a demand for, but we can't know that. So, yeah, that's really, really true. And actually that did kind of like make me think about that because, you know, I'm always putting out music and stuff and like, I don't really know if there's ever going to be a big enough audience for it. And no one knows and nobody can tell you. And anybody who says, this will not take off does not know what they're talking about. And anybody who yeah. says this absolutely will take off does not know what they're talking about. And those people have like incentive structures too. So there's somebody out there saying, give us money because we believe your thing is going to take off. And, 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 you know, really what they're saying is, you know, we want money from you. And so we're going to tell you your stuff is absolutely going to be a guaranteed hit. 
And then there's somebody else who's saying, no, my job in life is to like knock you down a peg and tell you that it's not going to be successful because that's how they gain their self-esteem. And both of them are wrong. They don't know. No one knows, (laughs) you know, and instead we just have to live with the uncertainty of like, I'm going to do the best work I can because who knows? And maybe it'll, you know, find an audience who loves it. But that is a, we live in that scary space in between. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, my to read is uh, Lent by uh, Joe Walton. I've not read it yet. It looks really fun and funny. Uh, it's about a bo- a, a character who ends up being, well, I'm going to read the back cover copy. Uh, young G- Girolamo's life is a series of miracles. It's a miracle that he can see demons plain as day and that he can cast them out with the force of his will. It's a miracle he's friends with Pico de Mirandola, the Count of Concordia. It's a miracle that when Girolamo visits the deathbed of Lorenzo, the magnificent, the dying Medici is wreathed in celestial light, a surprise to everyone, Lorenzo included. So it's like historical fiction with demons. And I'm like, Hmm. and it sounds funny. So I like all those things. So I will certainly be uh, checking that out. And I've heard that Joe Walton is amazing. So I'm, I'm excited to check out her stuff too. Cool. So yeah, that's, that's, that's on the list. The the, the pile is quite, uh, quite high, but uh, that's one that jumped out at me. I was like, Oh, I should check that out. Um, So we already talked about where folks can find you. I'll make sure that all those links are in the, uh, the, the show notes. Um, But uh, Folks to thank before we end our show. Uh, first of all, I always thank you, Max, because your song, uh, I Prefer the Dusk, is the intro and outro to our show. So yeah. Thank you for donating that. Thanks um, for playing it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, and folks who've been hearing that going, I want that song. Yes. Get that from Max. Uh, yeah. And then uh, thanks to Halizna CCO for their song Kids for the ad break. Um, thanks to Doug, the producer, for making the show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't. Uh, I cannot forget to mention Writers Not Writing is a production of Not A Pipe Publishing. So please go to notapipepublishing.com. Check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much. If you like this show, rate and review it wherever you found it. And check out Max's newest single, Antifreeze. That will, again, we'll have that in the uh, show notes. Uh, tell tell a friend about that as well. Share that. Yeah, totally. Um, and then rate and review. Rate and review this show. Rate and review our authors from Not A Pipe Publishing. Uh, and again, tell folks about Max's newest song so that you can spread the word about that a little bit. Um, okay, so we always end the show with a little bit of just a, a nice reminder for uh, the listener to take into this next week. So Max, what's one of your pieces of advice for our listeners? I've been thinking a lot about a post-digital future and like, what could we live like in that kind of thing and so i've been thinking a lot about grounding myself in the physical world and engaging with that and people in real life so i'd say that's what i want to see other people do yeah ground yourself in reality uh, i would say uh in life as in writing it's the spaces between the words that make it all meaningful so don't ignore the spaces and third no matter how much you procrastinate we're still proud of you. <laughs> if I take my time.